It's all accidental. The accident of birth and the accidents that happen along the way. And God knows, I could never have designed it like this. I mean, there was a lot of crap and disappointment. But if I'd been free to invent what might be grandly called a career, it's difficult to think of a better one. Hello, I'm Richard Paul Jones, PJ to my friends, and welcome to All The Jam, a podcast of nonsense from the fringes of rock and roll. The podcast seems to be developing in chronological order. It wasn't meant to, and probably won't continue to do so, but for this episode we're back at the truckloading coalface. I can't remember how I met Tony Sharp. I know it was 1974, and I suspect it was at a show in London. It may have been Joni Mitchell at the New Victoria Theatre, or at Finsbury Park Rainbow on the last date of my second tour. Whatever, it was a fortuitous meeting. After Cat Stevens, I got another tour loading another truck with another load of heavy stuff. This time it was for the Dutch band Focus. And as I dig through my memory to start this bit of nonsense, I realise that not for the first time I remember very little about it. I remember the names Jan Ackerman and Thijs van Leer, a wall of six Leslie rotary speakers. They're the ones that give the classic swirling Hammond organ Doppler sound, seldom used with the guitar, but very effective. And not for the first time, the album being promoted on the tour had a ludicrous title, The Hamburger Concerto. I've no idea why, but I've always subconsciously assumed it was something to do with McDonald's, which I'd discovered for the first time in Germany earlier that year. My conscious mind thinks otherwise, and will soon come up with another theory. Two Focus singles, Hocus Pocus and Sylvia, had been in the charts the year before, and although neither songs were on the new album, I recall both being in the set. Well, they had to, really. A lot of the audience would only know the band from these tunes, and not playing them would have probably halved ticket sales. I also remember that they had some beer mats with the album cover printed on them. And without further prompting, that's about it. I can't remember how long the tour was, or any of the venues, or who the support act was, or anything really. But we have the internet, so I'll look it up. Stand by. It says here, Sotto Voce, time passes. Hello, back again, all wikipedia up and freshly refocused, as it were. A little more digging than I originally intended has stirred up the memory and turned up a couple of facts, one of which I knew, and one of which I didn't. The fact I knew is that the Hamburger Concerto is partly based on the work of Brahms. What I didn't know was that Brahms was born in Hamburg and lived most of his life in Vienna. Thus one possible deduction is that the hamburger in question isn't edible, unless you're a cannibal. As an aside, the same degree of confusion could have resulted from the work being named the Vienna Concerto, as Vienna is a type of sausage, though the food connection isn't so obvious. Regardless, I can still hear the tonsil torturing falsetto and yodelling on Hocus Pocus and Sylvia, but that's probably as they are both minor classics and still get played on the radio quite a lot. The same can't be said for the eponymous concerto. It has six movements, the names of which I was unaware of at the time, and completely scuppered my theory on the origins of the word hamburger. They are starter, rare, medium one, medium two, well done, and one for the road. Now these may well be splendid works, but I have more of a feeling for words than music, and I can't help but deconstruct the movement names. And three things stand out. I mean, what's with the starter? A burger's meant to be a whole unto itself. Well, there may be sides like fries or onion rings, but who has a starter with a burger? And what would you have? A prawn cocktail? 
Crudite? A steaming bucket of brown Windsor soup? And who's ever responded to the question, how would you like it, with medium one or medium two? The most common answer has to be medium rare. I tried googling the most common answer and found only medium rare or well done. And we all know that well done's an abomination, only eaten by two sorts of people. Those who don't like food, and the hyper-risk averse, who know that beef has bacteria on the outside, which is killed when grilling a solid piece like a steak, but it's all mixed up and lurking with malicious intent in a patty, and could be fatal if even a morsel is left pink. But medium rare tastes better, so we all take our lives in our hands with every decent burger, and should have died a thousand times. And as for the last movement, one for the road, well, where to start? This invariably refers to the last drink of a session. It's a signal that it's time to stop drinking and go home. It doesn't easily cross over from bar to burger joint. I mean, have you ever just finished eating and thought, oh, I'll just get one more and take it out in case I get a bit peckish on the way home? Besides, that's what kebab shops are for. And one for the road is a fresh order, not a request for a doggy bag to transport the remains of the burger you haven't finished back to a loved one. I suppose it is possible that you might take one home for someone else. But the whole scenario where you eat out and then take another one home so that someone else can eat it alone could happen, but is it something to have a movement of a concerto named after? I know they're primarily musicians and that English isn't their first language, but you'd think someone might have mentioned these culinary titular inconsistencies. Uh, but I digress. On a more positive note, it seems the concerto itself was very well received. I've just listened to it on YouTube, and it's more satisfying and familiar than I thought, which surprised me, as I thought I didn't remember any of it. But the familiarity may be something to do with the similarities with other songs lodged somewhere in my mental jukebox. Younger listeners might find it useful to think of it more as a mechanical version of a streaming playlist. That's the one which is full of records, but only plays what it feels like playing. We all have one, and they get stuck from time to time and play the same record over and over, and we call those earworms. I know the concerto is based on one of the works of Brahms, and the Brahms work was variations on a theme by Haydn, but I'm classically uneducated, and the only theme that comes to my mind is about a minute in, and is from You Never Give Me Your Money on the Beatles' Abbey Road album. Or maybe they both borrowed the riff from Haydn. The internet also turned up a tour itinerary, and of course there are venues that were so familiar then and are mostly gone now. Manchester's Hard Rock, the Glasgow Apollo, my second visit there that year, then to Newcastle City Hall, and two hippodromes, one in Birmingham and one in Bristol, and ending up at the Rainbow in London. Which brings us full circle to where I might have met Tony Sharp. Wherever it was, Tony and I found ourselves killing time and comparing work situations. It was a sort of round one, and we were doing that thing that crew do, casually throwing around names of people we'd worked for and venues we'd played in a mostly non-aggressive exchange of experience to establish some sort of pecking order. I was two tours into what would become a career in the performing arts, even if it wasn't to be at the very heart of the music industry, but of course I didn't know it then. I have no idea what Tony had done before, but was convinced it was more than me. Nonetheless, we metaphorically circled each other in the benign dance, and I think I came out with an honourable, if entirely undeserved, draw. Once the pecking order, or lack of it, has been established, round two is usually what's coming up next. For Tony, it was busily juggling work for two bands, one I'd heard of, Principal Edwards Magic Theatre, 
Hey, this was the 70s, and this is what passed for normal back then. And one I hadn't. A rock band called Hustler. As for me, I was looking forward to dividing my time between the unemployment benefit office and the pub. Though I suspect I said something more non-committal. Then Tony asked if I'd be interested in helping with his workload, and I said I was sure I could fit it in, trying to sound like I was doing him a favour, but inwardly kicking up my heels. Kicking up one's heels is a strange expression, and saying it out loud makes me wonder if it's a phrase anyone uses these days. I don't think I've ever said it before. It's something I'd only seen done in films as an expression of joy. I tried it once, and it isn't as easy as Gene Kelly makes it look. Try it and see if you think it an appropriate way of expressing delight. But that's a topic for introspection later. Meanwhile, this offer from Tony was a real result. One of the attractions was that these were two gigging bands, doing the circuit of clubs and colleges known as the Tour of the Toilets. Another cause for celebration was that they both had small trucks. What I took away from this was goodbye to loading arctics. Later that night, as I finished the final loadout of the tour, I hoped it would be the last time I was that intimate with the back of a 30-foot trailer. I was almost right, but that's another story. The next week, I met Tony outside a rehearsal room at the back of a pub in Harlesden, the name of which I can't remember. Many years later, I'd be back there with another band. By this time, the pub had changed its name to The Mean Fiddler. But back in 1974, Principal Edwards, who seemed to have dropped the magic theatre bit, were rehearsing for a short run of three gigs lined up over the next week, with the next month's itinerary to come from the agency shortly after. All we had to do that night was pack away the gear and load the truck. They'd just about finished the rehearsal by the time we arrived. The room was rammed with drum kit, amps, guitars, keyboards, a frame with about a hundred miscellaneous metal things hanging from it, and a variety of flight cases and cardboard boxes, and looking more than a little out of place, an old galvanised water tank. There was nowhere for anyone to stand without being where someone else was already standing, and it was like a human version of those sliding tile puzzles, with one empty square where you have to slide the tiles around to complete a picture. And so we sidled around each other, and that was about as close as I got to an introduction to the band that night. The metal things on the frame were for the percussionist to hit, and Tony said the most useful thing I could do was put away the hitty things and take the frame apart so I knew how to put it together again. We packed everything up and loaded it all into the truck, and Tony asked if I'd drive for some reason that escapes me. Yeah, sure, I said, failing to mention I'd never driven anything bigger than an ice cream van some years previously. But how different could it be? Well, quite a lot as it turned out. We got in the cab and I started the engine, so far so good, and it was a four-gear manual shift, and so that was okay, and I pulled out cautiously onto the street. We turned into the main road and onto the one-way system. This was London in the 70s, and the highway code had long since given way to the law of the jungle. Fortunately, I'd learned to drive under these rules of combat, and soon realised that driving a fair-sized truck like this was not really a problem for two reasons. Firstly, it was a hire vehicle, and we all know that they're insured to buggery, so if something untoward happens, it just gets replaced, and my no-claim bonus remains unscathed. And secondly, no one with any sense who's driving a halfway decent car argues with a truck. So we entered the part of the one-way system that makes a narrow U-turn at the mind-numbing speed of about 20 miles an hour, and I felt that weird feeling, which I believe is a circulation in the toes cutting off, as the blood is redirected to the brain, just in case extra thinking power is needed. The other name for this feeling 
is fear. With the truck on full lock, I could feel the whole thing leaning over as the springs rolled the body and cab at an alarming angle. I was convinced we were going to turn the damn thing over, but of course we didn't. It is possible to roll one, but not at 20 miles an hour on a suburban street. In due course I came to identify the sensation of a nicely sprung cab as one of the great pleasures of driving a truck. Two days later I called Tony to let him know where to pick me up. Glad you called, he said. The gig's been cancelled. And we agreed where he would come to pick me up for the next gig a day or so later. The next date was at Wolverhampton Civic Hall. We unloaded the truck and started setting up on stage. I got the percussion frame assembled and then opened the box of hitty things. It looked like a mechanic's scrap pile, but was in fact a collection of tubular bells, gongs, and any number of bits of metal and leather and plastic and things to hit them with. At this point I realised I had no idea where any of them went on the frame. These days I would have taken a picture on my phone when in the rehearsal room, but back then, had I taken a photo, the film would still be at Boots, waiting to be developed. The band had arrived by this time and were hovering in anticipation of a sound check, and the percussionist was most accommodating and said he'd load up the percussion frame and I made some notes of where things went. Shortly after, I saw Tony dragging the galvanised water tank behind the backdrop, and a little while later he was deep in discussion with the venue's firemen. The tank, it turned out, was a bomb tank, used to provide a safe place for a theatrical maroon to be fired, producing a very loud bang, which it seems was an essential element of the show. A wire mesh lid fitted over the top to prevent any burning debris from setting fire to the council's beloved Grade 2 listed venue. The fireman was not a happy bunny. In my memory, he utters the finest of traditional phrases, You can't use that ear, mate. It's more than my job's worth but I suspect he probably quoted the regulations that made it an offence to blow up a civic hall. Whatever the actual words, the result was a point-blank refusal to allow the maroon to be used, and the band refused to go on without it, so the gig was cancelled, and we put everything back in the truck. The phrase health and safety hadn't entered common parlance at this point, but the Wolverhampton show may have been the first gig cancelled as a result of the new Health and Safety at Work Act, which came into effect that very year, and, I felt, had already done me out of a day's work, even if I was still going to get paid. How ironic that this is the same piece of legislation that would provide me with a good living a quarter of a century later. Meanwhile, back in 1974, Wolverhampton, Tony had told me that no more dates had come in from the agency yet. I only had one more show before life on the dole beckoned once again, and that was assuming the cancellation ferry took a few days off. This is not looking good, I thought, as we headed back down south. The third show was at Hitchin College, Hertfordshire. We did the load-in, set up the back line, hung the backdrop, assembled the props, primed the bomb tank and did the sound check. There's a hiatus between the doors opening to the public and the show starting when, assuming nothing disastrous has happened during the sound check, the crew have a sort of quiet moment to prepare for the show. Not so today... As the punters were coming in, I was in the dressing room with the multi-talented vocalist, flautist, keyboard and fiddle player, Bindi. She told me that Tony would look after things on stage and I was to be the follow-spot operator. I'd been a spot-up on the Cat Stevens tour and quite liked the job. It involved pointing a super trooper spotlight at someone on stage and following them as they moved around, taking cues from the lighting director on a talkback headset. He'd call out which colour to use, the width of the spot who to point the thing at and when to turn it on and off. 
The headset had a microphone so that we could confirm we were in position and that the spot was ready to go. One way and another, it was quite a comforting setup. So when Bindi said I was to be spot up, I said, no problem. I really have to stop saying that. I was to follow her for a number of songs throughout the set. Second song, fourth song, fifth song and so on. I can do that, I thought. And then the problem made itself apparent as she described the only special cue which needed a quick flick from open white to blackout. She described a point in the song where this was to happen in that language musicians and wannabe musicians use when talking about music. And I should have known it too. But while I could recognise a verse and a chorus, I had no idea what a middle eight was or what drops or bridges were. Of course I know now, but back then she might as well have said medium one, medium two and well done. And to add to the problem, there was no headset and no talk back. To put it in context, some days ago we'd arrived at the rehearsal after they'd finished and the next two gigs had been cancelled. And so, to date, I'd not heard a note of the set. And even if I had, I'm really bad with songs. I just can't remember the structures and often can't remember which song is which in a set I've heard dozens of times. I think this should have been the first indication that much as I like the life, this might not be the best job for me. Bindi described the cue as best she could, and I tried to remember it as best I could. But it was like taking directions to the library at the side of a noisy road in a strange town. No matter how good the directions are, the person giving them has a picture in their head, and the person receiving them doesn't. And humans have a problem concentrating on these sort of instructions, let alone following them in any meaningful way. It just becomes a string of words that get easily confused. Was it the first right and the second left, or the other way round? And for me, the description might as well have been in Braille. All I took away from the briefing is that Bindi will come on partway through the song in a bodysuit with spikes on it, and I'll have to turn the lights on and off. Or is it off and on? Anyway, the punters come in, the house lights go down, and the set starts. Forty years later, I wrote to band member and Bindi's husband, Richard, whose email address I had excavated from the depths of the internet. After a brief introduction, I said, I was on follow spot, despite never having seen the show or heard a note of live performance. I fucked up the only real cue, which involved Bindi wearing a glowing spiky costume. She did the number in open white when it should have been in blackout, and I spent the rest of the show thinking that this would be my first and last gig with the band. I went on to say, In the dressing room, the mood was sombre, and I apologised to Bindi. She was splendidly generous and said the song probably worked better with the spot on. She's had a warm place in my heart ever since. A minute later, the manager, Miles Copeland, came into the dressing room, was very rude to the percussionist, and then fired him. As I remember, the rest of the band fired themselves in an act of solidarity. But this may not be the case, and it was 40 years ago. However, I'd been right about it being my first and last gig with the band, and assumed it was as the show didn't work, and part of it not working was my fuck-up on the spot. Richard replied thus, To put your mind at rest, and to assuage years of guilt, we didn't break up quite then. We decided to take a break, and Miles arranged for us to have a couple of months in a cottage in Devon to work on new material. The result of our endeavours in Devon was the rehearsal tape, We played it to Miles, and he didn't like it, and dropped the band. In fact, this was all part of a plan to get me to rejoin the Climax Blues Band, which I did. What a nice man. 
Back in 1974, once again I was out of a job and drove home with that sinking, here I go again feeling. A couple of days later, Tony called. His oppo, who'd been working with him and Hustler, had moved on and did I want the gig? Did I? Bloody right I did. And for the fourth time that year, I was back on the road. Within a week, I was in Hustler's truck, driving up and down the motorways to dusty clubs with sticky carpets, the dark caves that smelled of stale beer and cigarettes during the day and reeked of rock and roll and self-indulgence at night. It was a singular time of promise and delusion, hard work and indolence, risk and reward. We ruled our world with a mixture of arrogance and innocence that only became apparent in retrospect. I can't help thinking it'll be a long time until the elements combine in such a way for another generation, but then who wants to do what their grandparents did? New combinations of circumstance, fashion and opportunity will continue to inspire irrepressible youth who will make the best of their own times, live on the edge and become their own legends. And this is as it should be. Well, that's enough of the nonsense for the time being. You may have heard something of my time with Hustler in a previous episode, but there's plenty more, or there will be if I can remember it. Meanwhile, take care, look after yourselves, look after your friends.